But even if it wasn't a measured and thoughtful book, and as I say, I'm not, I don't feel necessarily massively qualified to judge that. The idea that you, you should be able to publish an, a, a non-measured, a non-thoughtful, mm. a polemical book about anything you want. Yeah. Otherwise, we have nothing. We have mm. we're just you know a collection of kind of you know rules laid down by people who have no authority and no kind of mandate. It's just extraordinary that we're in this situation. Yeah, I agree. So it, it, in one sense, the book itself doesn't really matter. Um, what matters is the fact that you know it, it, it should be free to read if it's if it's well written enough, which it was. If it's authoritative enough, which it was, and if it was argued well enough, which it was, qualitatively, it's good enough to be published. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And in this bonus episode, myself and three writers talk about our summer reading recommendations. So sit back and enjoy as we suggest our picks of history and historical fiction. Do let me know your thoughts. Links to all the titles are in the show notes, as well as my email address and Twitter links. Until then, I'll hand you over to me talking summer reads with the gang. So today on the podcast we have a bit of a treat. This is a this is a first timer in that we've got foursome on our podcast, and we're going to be talking summer reads. And so I have three very distinguished guests with me who also serve on the board of Aspects of History. And so I need to mind my p's and q's here. So I have with me Roger Morehouse, the historian, or written who's been on the show twice already written wonderful books most recently first to fight and he's got another com- uh, book coming up in august so we'll hear all about that we have antonia senior the historical fiction reviewer for the times and the author of a few fiction books herself and then finally we have richard foreman who is a very prolific novelist and publisher and he will, I'm sure, be forthright with his opinions. So uh, we'll kick off with what we're doing today. We're talking summer reads. So I thought I'd kick off with one particular book. But let's, dear listeners, I just want to let you know, I have to warn you that we are, there are libations being passed around. We are drinking. And so if you hear the odd glass clink or the odd word being slurred, don't judge us too terribly. But it's it's the middle of the day, so this is not a common occurrence for us, so maybe we won't overdo it too much. Right, so we're going to start off with a book that I've read very recently and interviewed the author, and he was absolutely uh, just quite inspiring, actually, and that's Serhii Plokhi, a Ukrainian historian. So I thought we'd kick off with that, and Roger, I know, is interested in that. But, Roger, I, I, I read this book, and speaking to Serhii, he... He was he was very inspirational because the book is almost a pay-on to the Ukrainian people, I thought. Mm. And, and, I, and I wanted to get your view on that. And then, and then Richard and Antonia chip in. Yeah, it is, absolutely. It's, he's, um, I mean, he is the man uh, for Ukrainian history, alongside, I would say, Timothy Snyder. So the two of them really have cornered the market for Ukrainian history. Not that there was particularly a market before a few years ago. 
Um, but certainly, the, you know, the, um, they're making hay now with, uh, with the, the events of the last year with the Russian invasion. Um, and his, uh, his book is History of Ukraine, uh, Gates, of, Gates of Europe, I think it's called, um, which has been out for about 15 years, went straight to the uh, bestseller lists on, upon the Russian invasion of last year. So, you know, there's, there's um, something here for the, you know, the, uh, an, Ill, an ill wind bringing some good to somebody because it, it did well for him, prom promoted him back into, into the limelight. And it is a fantastic book. So he started writing it just on the, on the invasion. Uh, February 2022 uh, um, and it covers essentially I think most of the events I think he finished writing a month a year later so in February 23 so there's really been rushed through bearing in mind that you know publishers these days at least take 12 months in production so this has been really rushed through and, and necessarily so um, but it is a brilliant book I mean it's it's relatively concise it I think were I his editor, I think I would have cut it down a bit more. I mean, it's about 300 nods, probably 350 pages of text, um, which is pretty good for, for a big subject. Um, it is one of those that I frustratingly... You'd have cut it further? I would have done. I think, I think certainly the, the sort of the, the prelude stuff, the run-up, where he talks about, he talks about Ukraine's um, you know, tortured history with Russia in the 19th century and beyond... And then up to Ukrainian independence in 91 and then that relationship with Russia, all of which, of course, needs to be in there. But you do have, you know, the, the book is about the, the Russian-Ukrainian war. It, it is one of those books where it takes until, you know, a third of the way in. So 130 pages plus before you actually get to February 22, which I always find slightly frustrating because um, you want to sort of get to the get to the the nub of of what you what you want to read about. But so, it, didn't the war start in twenty fourteen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, he's he's outlining that as well. But still, you know, um, I think there was too much, too much of that sort of prehistory was there. I mean, it needs to be there, of course. But I would have cut that down myself. Right. If, were I his editor? Right. But still, I mean, he writes brilliantly. If, again, for an academic. He writes really well. There's lovely clarity to it. Um, there's no sort of jargonising and so on. It's not. It, you don't have to reread paragraphs, which you often do with academics, bless them. So that's that's absolutely brilliant in it. I think. You, you, again, I, I'm sounding critical. It's a brilliant book, and I would absolutely recommend it. It it's it it would benefit from some little journalistic flourishes left, right, and centre. That's one thing. You know, it's a, it is a tad arid. We have to say, but it's still. I mean, it's brilliant. You know, it is, I think it's the book on the, on the Russian-Ukrainian war. I think the, the only thing that comes close, which I would also recommend, I know we're talking about books for this year, but um, Owen Matthews' book for last year, which came out um, called Overreach, which I thought was fantastic. And that does have that sort of journalistic flair to it that um, just makes it a bit more of a page-turner as well. So that's, that I would recommend as well, which is probably coming out in paperback sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that I would recommend as well. Well, you used to have that journalism was the first draft of history, but now, in a sense, history books are coming out on a war that there doesn't seem to be necessarily an end to, which is slightly different in terms of, you know, what publishing is used to. Although, I, I, in a sense, the, the framing of the war is that, you know, the, the Ukrainians are on the side of the angels, mm. uh, and let's face it, the... Uh, Soviet Empire, let's call it, is on the side of the devils, which yeah. is which for, for Russian Empire. 
Well, it's called a Soviet Empire. <laughs> and, uh, and it's rare that that happens where there is this sort of clear-cut good and bad guys in a war. Yeah. I know there will be people out there that will slightly disagree and say there's more nuance. But for, you know, argument's sake, we are dealing with a sort of unjust war. Yeah, he does make, he does make that point. He says this is a you know, rare example of a good war. Yeah. You know, in the same way as, as World War Two was. You know, it's very clear who the aggressor mm. is. Um, you know, we can argue perhaps about the nuances. Personally, I don't think there are that many nuances, but um, I'm sure some people do. Um, but yeah. Well, one nuance, and sorry, Antonio, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask though, Richard's point about writing history on the fly. I mean, can you write history on the fly? It seems to me to be quite soon to write a history. Yeah, you know I how agree. do you how you know we defining your terms? I don't quite know how you do it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that you know there's there's a sort of um, well, there's no rules here, but almost an unwritten rule that that you you know you have to sort of wait a generation mm. or, or yeah. uh, at least sort of fifteen years after events, you know, things have to settle down, and as you say, the event has to finish surely before you start writing about it. So, yeah, there is that. So this is absolutely the first draft. The thing is, he, he writes with such sort of authority, uh, and he absolutely knows his subject. He knows Ukrainian history brilliantly well. He is, as I said, he's the authority on Ukrainian history. Um, so you, it doesn't feel like it's that sort of journalistic first draft. It doesn't give that impression um, to its credit. So I suppose I, in one sense, it's such a... The, the, the um, reasons behind the war are so long-standing, and are historical... Mm. So it is a modern war, but it's very rooted in history. So I suppose in that sense, you know, you need a historian's eye, not just a journalist's eye, right? Yeah, indeed. And, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the sort of longer-term strategic stuff that he teases out in his um, conclusions, you know, about um, that this is potentially looking at the eclipsing of Russia long-term. You know, that we were in a multipolar world and we're going to go back to a bipolar world and um, one of those poles is not going to be Moscow, it's going to be Beijing and Washington, mm. um, which from the perspective of right now looks absolutely right, and I think that's a fair, a fair shout on his part. Um, so a lot of that stuff, you know, the sort of wider strategic stuff that he's, that he's raising is, is really interesting, and, it, and again, it feels authoritative as well, it doesn't feel like it's a, a sort of a, a journalistic but, punt. But English isn't his first language, this has been translated, or...? No, he's written it himself. Oh, right, okay. But... I'd he, hope he's written it himself. No, I mean, he's, he didn't need a translation later. Uh, but he, he is, when he speaks, it's very fluently, it's very fluent English. So, I mean, he's a professor of history at Harvard University. But what you mentioned a nuance, and I wanted to mention this because Owen Matthews, because everyone asked the question, how's this war going to end? And, and we're not going to linger too much longer on Ukraine, but when, how's this war going to end? And a lot of people think about saying, uh, suggesting perhaps Russia keeps the Donbass and Crimea because militarily it's very difficult to, to gain, retain, re regain those, those um, territories. But he's, he's, Plocky is very unequivocal on that, whereas Owen Matthews, I think, is a bit more pragmatic on that standpoint. And that's a bit of a difference between mm. the two. Obviously, Plocky's Ukrainian and, and yeah. says they will fight... And I think end. Matthews as well, to be fair to him, I think he's spent a lot of time in Moscow. He said to me that would any, any, any country in the West be willing to sever a yeah. part of their own country? Yeah. I mean, it's one thing worth mentioning there is I Owen mean, Matthews, obviously, well, I'm, I'm imagining he's British. I think he's British, isn't he? But he spent a long time in Moscow as a foreign correspondent. So to some extent, he's not necessarily sort of 
um, Russophilic in that sense, but he, he's probably more attuned to Russian sensibilities. So maybe that explains to some extent why he thinks that would be a, a, um, a suitable solution. Personally, I, don't, I wouldn't say that. Um, you know, you ask any, any country in Europe which 20% of their territory they're willing to give up um, to, uh, to an aggressive neighbour, and most of them would say none. Um, and I think that's the right response. So, I mean, it might come, the, the, might come to, to pass that this is a necessary concession to make at some point, but at the moment, while, and certainly while the winds are in Ukraine's favour, as they seem to be, fingers crossed at the moment, then why should they be thinking about territorial concessions at all? I just want to um, just briefly uh, pick up on something which is Owen Matthews also writes brilliant historical fiction just uh if anybody's is it spy fiction yeah so well kind of it's um a trilogy that he's written set in 50s and 60s uh soviet russia and the hero is a kgb officer called vasin um and in the first one uh it's all around nuclear um uh, russia's big nuclear experiments and the most recent one is starts in the gulag uh and you know i won't ruin it for you because they they follow on from each other so so there's too many spoilers, but if anybody is interested in um, kind of Soviet thrillers, Owen Matthews is the guy. They're really, really good. I love them. KGB hero. KGB hero. I mean, obviously he's a bit tortured. <laughs> because you know, yeah, he's literally like, and metaphorically. Yeah, he's tortured rather than torturer in this case, which is like ideal in your hero. Um, so yeah, uh, but they're very worth read. I highly recommend. Can we mention that you're? You've got you're looking you're writing a book at the moment. Yeah, I mean, can we? Yes, I think so. I mean, I want you to. But do you mind? No, go on. No, so I'm I'm I I although I'm still reviewing historical fiction, I've now moved uh, professionally towards uh, history. So I'm writing a book now about Stalin and the Cambridge Five. So um, yeah, I'm quite uh, into this period of history. But um, the KGB stuff from Owen is, I think, really well done. Fantastic. And Richard, do you have a book that you want to talk about? Well, there's, uh, uh, there's not just one book of the year, I suspect, uh, for all of us. I mean, the book that uh, kind of garnered a lot of press and will be a talking point of a history book of the year will be Nigel Vickers' Colonialism. And part of the story is that, I mean, in a sense, there are some people perhaps in a publisher that which will remain unnamed, in brackets, Bloomsbury, that potentially uh, cancelled this book quicker than a Philip Schofield tribute telephone. Uh, so, you know, the book came out and it was basically great that it did. And it also sold in bucket loads, of course. Uh, and, you know, uh, I read the book looking for some controversy, but, you know, it was far more consistent than a Prince Harry witness statement. Uh, he'd, he'd done his research, it's, it's plenty of evidence. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not the only one that kind of enjoyed the book. But the, in terms of a history book, there wasn't a lot of hoo-ha about it. Whether it was deserved or not, I'll open up to you. I mean, I read it. I, um, I could see why it was controversial, because, you know, um, in the current environment, anything that doesn't take a sort of... Uh, a, a very black and white view about colonial history is going to come in for flack. Uh, I thought the flack itself was like r absurdly ridiculous. You know, we've got to be able to have conversations openly mm. about everything. Otherwise, mm. who are we? Um, I, you know, the book was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, I 
probably don't know enough context to judge his argument. But uh, the idea that we can stifle people writing about the past because of our own mm-hmm. preoccupations with the present seems to me to be so dangerous and so mm-hmm. wrong-headed that I sort of read it on principle. So yeah. yeah, I think I mean it's I agree with that. I think it's it's like one of those sort of bellwether books in a way that it it were that written twenty years ago it wouldn't even have you know mm. caused a flurry at all. It wouldn't have caused caused any interest or or uh, wouldn't have been considered remarkable. And yet where we are. Uh, in this sort of curious world of of the culture wars and so on, um, it's it's suddenly you know seen as a sort of you know a heinous act of heresy. Um, it's yeah. nothing of the sort, of course, as we as we know. It's a very it's a very measured and moderate and thoughtful book. Um, so as much as anything, it just reflects on what what strange times we're living. In. Even if, but even if it wasn't a measured and thoughtful book, and as I say, I'm not I don't feel necessarily massively qualified to judge that. The idea that you, you should be able to publish and a non-measured, a non-thoughtful, mm. a polemical book about anything he wants. Yeah. Otherwise, we have nothing. We have mm. we're just you know a collection of kind of you know rules laid down by people who have no authority and no kind of mandate. It's just extraordinary that we're in this situation. Yeah, I agree. So, it, it, in one sense, the book itself doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, what matters is the fact that you know it, it, it should be free to read if it's if it's well written enough, which it was. If it's authoritative enough, which it was, and if it was argued well enough, which it was, qualitatively, it's good enough to be published. Therefore, anybody who thinks it shouldn't have been should really get out of the industry and go and do something like, I don't know, involving safe spaces and you know, yeah. umbrellas. <clears throat> I don't know. It, it's it bizarre. He's a friend of the show. He's been on. Listeners will be familiar with Nigel Bigger. And I found, like... Like like all three of you, I was expecting controversy and didn't really find it. I wouldn't say I agree with every single thing in the book, but that's true of many that's true. history books. Yeah. Yes, right. and one thing, one uh, one criticism that he receives, which is just ridiculous, is that he's he's not a scholar of empire, whatever that means, because it's not as if Nigel Bigger is professor of fun at Clown University. Mm-hmm. He's he's a yeah. He's a he's been a, a very distinguished professor at Oxford for many years. So some of the criticism he takes is just so bizarre. Yeah. Mm. But I suppose that one of the things about that is history is one of those rare disciplines that anybody can set themselves up as a historian. Mm. And if you are an academic historian, you know, who wants to sort of jealously guard your citadel, it must be quite annoying that people come in and set themselves up and often make more money than you so and, and sometimes have more original ideas than you let's be honest or, or, or aren't bound by the strictures of academia yeah. which do make it very difficult to be creative in your non-fiction world right yeah. because if you have to produce certain documents and jump through certain hoops to get funding or whatever you can't go off and write something yeah. you know wildly popular it doesn't yeah. work like that so I you know but I, yeah I think that's probably I mean a lot of the criticism that that uh, Nigel received was from that kind of wonderful oxymoron of the cultural historians uh, where you know it's not necessarily a subject they uh, they may have studied the noble pursuit of uh, English literature which is fine and cultural studies are fine but then to sort of dress yourself up in the weeds of a historian uh, doesn't necessarily convince all the people all the time mm. no no. Not so we, we've done Ukraine, we've done colonialism, 
What 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 should we do next? Should we go some historical fiction? I think. Okay, so um, do you know what? It hasn't actually been a very stellar year for historical fiction. I think one of the reasons being there are too many um, uh, ret- feminist retellings of Greek myths. Every other book I get on my desk is a feminist retelling <sighs> of Greek myth. And I no look, I mean I'm a feminist. I love a Greek myth, right? But after the fifteenth, I'm kind of done. Um, but there have been some really good ones. So the one, the kind of literary fiction one that I really loved this year was called For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain by Victoria Mackenzie, which is quite an extraordinary title. It's mm. laying claim to something if you call your book something like that. Anyway, so it's about Julian of Norwich. Do you chaps know about Julian of Norwich? Was he a chronicler? She. She. It was a, I knew it was a she. Yeah. Not John so, Julius uh, Norwich. Then. No, no, not John no. Julius Norwich. No. So Julian of Norwich was a um, lived in the thirteenth century, Saint. and she was yeah. I, was she sainted? Maybe. Anyway, so she was an anchoress, but she lived alone in a room for years and years and years, and was incredibly wise, and can be lay claim to be one of the first female writers of English. And anyway, so, sounds like a historian. Yeah, one lived mm. alone in her room, yeah, miserably. Yeah, very wise. In a, <laughs> wise in a room full of moss and misery. Yeah. yeah. Um, Only recognised decades, centuries after her existence. But that sounds really original and interesting. It's really original. So she, she Victoria Mackenzie, it's a debut. It's brilliantly done. It intersperses the story of Julian with the story of Marjorie Kemp, who was also a prophetess at the time. And does a, the bits with Marjorie Kemp are actually really funny because she goes around kind of prophesying and everybody finds her quite annoying and they run away from her and she chases after them telling them about <laughs> Jesus, which is all great fun. But it's a very brilliantly written book of two strong voices, um, uh, which and it and it's quite profound and it's there's a lot to think about and I, I'm really impressed. As a debut, it was extraordinary. So I'm really looking forward to doing, seeing what she does next. Um, and yeah, it's and also it's very short. So. Oh, well, I like that. <laughs> I like short books. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind a long title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very yeah. long title and a quite short book. I, I should mention to listeners that all the links to these books will be in the, uh, in the show notes. And if you want to dig more into Nigel Bigger, there's an interview that we did um, with him uh, earlier on in the year. On that, can I just... Uh, as an aside, um, you said that's her, her debut and it's very impressive. And, yeah. And presumably we don't know how long that took her to put together. But then how often do those debuts, are they, the follow-ups as good? Do they? Is that something that almost becomes a curse for an author? that they? Yeah, the second book is always a really difficult yeah. one, I think, for especially when you've had some success with your first one. Yeah. Um, and some people literally have only one really great book In and them, that's yeah. it. And they, you know, like, for example, so there was all that fuss, wasn't there, when um, uh, Harper Lee brought out the sequel to, yeah. to Kill a Mockingbird and everybody was like, oh, well, my it was God, it's 40 rubbish. years later as well. Yeah, yeah. it was 40 years yeah. later and Atticus yeah. turned out to be a dreadful racist. Yeah. <laughs> was, <laughs> was quite upset by that. Um, that. That's a spoiler. I haven't read it. I think Atticus Fish did an endorsement for colonialism. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Attica Smith loves Nigel Bigger. You heard it here. So, yeah, I think it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Often the second book, if you've had a success first book, you are chivied along yeah. to deliver and make some more money. So yeah. there is that thing where, a, a, as you say, as a, a, a writer has taken 
X amount of years to craft that first book. Yeah. And the second book is like, can you do it in, in half the time? Which which some people are actually fine with. Mm. Uh, yeah. But others, is, is more difficult. I remember I'd, uh, not long ago, a couple of months ago, I was stuck in a, an airport um, poultry lounge and I spotted Anthony Beaver. We'd just been at the same oh, wow. history festival. This is in Copenhagen. You can afford to be in the same uh, airport lounge as Anthony Beaver. Yeah, absolutely right. right. You, you heard it here. The conference absolutely must right. have been paying people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we, we, we were chatting for about an hour or so, and he, and it, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Anthony before, but he, he was talking about, um, he mentioned this about the, the pressure of, after Stalingrad, which wasn't his first book, to be fair, but it was his first really big. Oh, huge. And it was a huge hit. I mean, we're talking, what, 1.8 million in the yeah, UK or something yeah. ridiculous, which is insane yeah. for a history book. And he said that the pressure of, of following that up from the publisher, from the press, from his agent, from everybody, and from himself, was almost crippling, you know, yeah. that, that, and that's someone who's already an established historian who's mm. who had written by that time probably three no, that, books. I was I was working in a bookshop when when Berlin came out, yeah. and he kindly came in and did a signing. Funnily enough, uh, when James Holland was uh, still doing publicity, this is a, how many years yeah, ago, it. and it was an event. I mean, this was you know selling gazillions of yeah, copies, was, yeah. uh, and uh, they're, they're sort of few and far between the history market yeah. for, for having such an event. I do think there's, there's less pressure on historians to deliver so quickly, mm. but for instance, I think, what was it, uh, 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 Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, the, the sort of yeah. follow-up uh, by, oh, my namesake, name? Foreman, Amanda, uh, Amanda oh, yeah. Foreman, and the follow-up, which was a separate subject, Maybe took fifteen years. I'm mm. not so sure, uh, and I think that's partly due to some pressure. I guess. I don't well, know. maybe one of us will be successful enough to understand this pressure. Yes, that'd be at nice. some point. <laughs> <laughs> maybe then we can, then we can yeah. come back and discuss it. Yeah. From, what, from your first book, it sounds like what you need is Putin to invade Poland, and then your yes. all your books will yes. fly off the shelf. Yeah, in an exact sort of replica of 17th of September 1939. Yeah, obviously, so that the, the whole the whole comparison need not be made. To well, 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 listen, listen Roger, Roger has it. just slipped me both. <laughs> a note and 20 pounds to say, well, tell us about your new book, The Forges, that's out, <laughs> out in, on August the 10th, I believe. Very Can unsubtle. Can you give us Very a... Very unsubtle. Uh, uh, and that's with inflation, 20 pounds, unfortunately. <laughs> it is. It's out on uh, 10th of August, uh, Bodley Head in the UK, um, The Forges. It's the fascinating and hitherto unknown story of a group of uh, Polish diplomats and Jewish activists working out of Bern in Switzerland who, during the war, were uh, forging, in a, in a very sort of systematic sort of cottage industry style, were forging Latin American passports, mainly Paraguayan, uh, which they then spirited into occupied Poland in an effort to save uh, Polish Jews, primarily Polish Jews, from the Holocaust. Um, it's quite a remarkable story, and it, it's one of those that kind of slipped through the cracks, like so many. Um, well, so many of the stories that I, I tend to pick up, not pick up on, because I, I do like those stories that you know have disappeared. Um, retreading, you know, another book about the Dambusters is my my idea of um, Hades, frankly. But there we you are. You always mention the Dambusters. I do. It's my it's my little thing. <laughs> I mean, it's a great story. I love the Dambusters. Another book has come out about. I know. They, they well, another dam has just been busted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But see, that's my kind of go-to as an example of, you know, retread history. I can't really be bothered with it. But anyway, um, so this is, you know, this wasn't really known about until 
Um, literally wasn't known that until five years ago. And then it was discovered by the, the then um, Polish ambassador in, in Bern in Switzerland, um, who was given the sort of the, the tip off that uh, his, his uh, residence was a, uh, a scene of great historical events. And he, he got one of his staff to start researching this. And then I was brought in at some point. Um, you know, shown the, the material that they've got and said, this is a good story, do you fancy it? And I said, absolutely. Uh, and it is, it's a fabulous story. You know, they, they reckon, um, they, well, they, we know that they, they um, distributed around 10,000, or passports to 10,000 people, which gives you the scale of the thing. Um, and of those, we know that upwards of 800 actually survived the Holocaust, which is, which is remarkable. Um, and not that 10,000 survived then. No, so, 10,000 so received passport, passports. The, the, um, the, the problem is that the German, the, what the Germans used to do was that they would, they would take those that proclaimed themselves to be Paraguayans. Because what the, what the passport system did was it basically sort of put a sort of legal stick in the, in the, in the wheel of the, of, the, of the Holocaust mechanism, right? Because part of the Holocaust mechanism, which is something that people don't, don't really appreciate, is that it, it required a delegalization of the victims. Right, so they had to have no rights, right? Because you, you know, Nazi Germany, although we imagine that you know it's kind of this sort of uh, this chaotic, um, you know, race-based uh, dictatorship where anything can happen, it's actually still um, a state governed by law. It's still a Reichstag in that sense. They've they've perverted the law, but the mm. law still functions. So you can't just take people away and murder them in Auschwitz. So you have to delegalize them first. So the act of deportation, for example, for German Jews. The act of deportation, when they, when they actually leave the country, that was the point at which their citizenship effectively lapsed, right? And the same thing with Polish Jews. So Polish Jews were in a, in a position where their Polish identity, um, legal identity, had, had already been abolished with the, with the abolition of Poland after the invasion. And then they were given these sort of temporary documents which didn't have any sort of legal weight at all. So effectively, effectively the Germans could do with them what they wanted. So what, what the... What it meant that they could, when they could brandish one of these Paraguayan passports, for example, it meant that it, 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 it created an, a legal framework again, albeit theoretical. Mm. So, the, so the German authorities basically kind of throw their arms up and go, oh, blimey, look, there's another one. Uh, and, we, and we send them to, to, to um, rather, rather than Auschwitz, we send them to Belsen. And to the British mind, Belsen is a pretty terrible place, and it was. Um, but that was a sort of hybrid camp where they kept all sorts of kind of lib liminal categories of Jews and prisoners of all sorts. Um, and they sent these, what they called exchange Jews, to Belsen in the expectation that at some point they could exchange these Jews for, um, for German citizens abroad. Um, the problem is, of course, that you know, if that was 1943 and you get sent to Belsen, you've got to survive two years in Belsen. Which is no easy thing, because Belsen is increasingly, as the war goes on, and particularly by the end of 44, 45, it's an absolute hellhole. Uh, you know, rampant disease and the conditions are horrific and so on. So you've got to survive potentially two years in Belsen. And that's the bit that a lot of them don't survive. What was the difference between Belsen and Auschwitz? Belsen is a, is a sort of regular concentration camp in that sense. And, it's, and actually, it's a hybrid camp in that it has parts of it that are classified as a concentration camp, and other parts that are classified as an internment camp. So the, the, the exchange Jews are sent to an, a camp within it, which is an internment camp. So they don't have to work, at least until later on in the war. Um, they can keep their own clothes, for example. They can keep luggage. So they're not kept like concentration camp prisoners. So they're kept as 
you know, privileged prisoners because they're expected, they want them to survive so they can be exchanged. Um, Auschwitz is also a hybrid. I mean, it has the concentration camp aspect to it, but of course, Auschwitz-Birkenau, you know, has the death camp uh, element to it as well. So shorthand, when we say someone is sent to Auschwitz, it means we're sending them to, to um, you're sending them to Auschwitz-Birkenau and they're, they're being gassed and uh, exterminated. So um, they're very different animals, actually. I mean, the end result, if you're in them, is kind of not, very often not dissimilar. Um, but actually, they're very different animals. And this is one of the curiosities. I know this is a niche thing and kind of reflects my kind of weird, weird interest in Nazi Germany. But um, all of all of the concentration camps are, are kind of unique in their own way. They're, they all have their own, you know, peculiar, weird, horrible character. Um, but is that a reflection not... of the, the region and or staff? It's, it's as much a reflection of that as as the fact that there were no sort of there were no sort of cookie cutter instructions mm. of this is how it's supposed to be. Mm. Theoretically, they had that, and they and the camp was originally supposed to be. Saxonhausen was one of those. Where I, I went there. Yeah. there. you can see the the roofs of a normal um, local yeah. residence yeah, just yeah. over the walls. And the same with Dachau. I mean, Dachau was set up in in um, thirty three. Is the first one of the uh, of the Nazi concentration camps, but. Um, you know, Sachsenhausen was one of that was one of the first of the second wave in thirty six um, that were set up, and it was meant to be a sort of a model concentration camp. This is how we're going to do it. This is how it's going to look, and this is how it's going to function. So they did have, to some extent, that sort of cookie cutter, but then it didn't really work because it's always, you know, it's always been the conditions already been modified by you know the local situation, or as you say, the staff or the whoever the commandant is, or whatever it is. Uh, and then, of course, the death camps are a, are a different category altogether, and a lot of those are hybrids. So, like like Auschwitz-Birkenau, it's a concentration camp and it's also a death camp. Um, so then, you you kind of lose any sort of any sort of idea of of of, of clarity about what you're dealing with. Um, so, to put it, you know, the short answer is Auschwitz-Birkenau versus Belsen. They are both absolutely abhorrent places. Um, but of the two, you'd probably want to be in Belsen. Um, so that, that was, you know, for these prisoners, certainly, this was considered um, the better place to be. At least they had the chance to survive. The tragedy is that not many of them did. Um, so of those 10,000 that we know, we, we know that over 800 did survive, which is, which is remarkable. Um, and it's not far off, you know, Oscar Schindler figures. You know, that's about 1,100 that, that, that he enabled to survive. So it's quite possible that others will, you know, with the with the book, that others will come forward because this was an unknown story. It's not When's the book out, Roger? It's out on August the tenth. I'm not year. sharing my twenty pounds for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm just going to have a bit of cheese with some fig jam that was sent in by a listener. So Deborah Steen, thank you very much. Right, moving on to probably something more cheerier have we got a, have we got a book that's a bit cheerier well i've got a i've got a fun book that's due out in july i've just been sent the proof uh and for all of the, the the sex and violence or because of the sex and violence it's fun so uh tom holland is bringing out a new book about the roman empire called pax and it's due out the beginning of july and he's basically hit it out the park again i mean the book is excellent he's he's just brilliant i mean this how well, does he have the time Clever, Roger. I believe he's on tour at the moment in America, funny enough. And lis uh, with, listeners, with, with he his... will be a guest on the podcast oh. in July. Excellent. Well, I mean, he's brilliant at picking out what's kind of 
relevant with the Roman Empire and its uh, uh, personalities. But he's also unafraid of just, you know, the Roman Empire was weird and different. And he's just excellent at just kind of insight, uh, humour, colour. I mean, loads of people have written books about this, this period before. Uh, but his one will be a bit like Rubicon, uh, sort of the, the one to go to. He kind of, you know, it straddles scholarship, but entertaining as well. Uh, so that is, uh, yeah, comfortably a kind of history book of the year. Well, I, I read, sorry to interrupt you there, Roger, I read his introduction and I'm going to be taking it away with me to Greece in, in, um, on Saturday. And his introduction was, a be- I thought, beautifully written argument for how we shouldn't judge the past by the present, but very subtly r- written in that, in that way. And th- I think that's something that, um, I don't want to mention any names, but some historians forget. Mm. Can we please mention the names on an additional <laughs> podcast? <laughs> we can. Yeah, but uh, Patreon it, members get all yes. the true gossip. Uh, it'll be a long list. Now I'm a, on on Tom Holland. I'm a big fan of Tom Holland. So I think I think the um, well the podcast that they do, the rest is history. Not the, obviously a rival podcast, but no, know, no, it is, no, it no, is no. Brilliant. You have to say it's brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, and he's a he's a he's a proper proper intellect, and he writes beautifully. And I remember very clearly. My first exposure to Tom, as it were, was um, doing the Dartington Festival way back. This is when I, I was publicising Killing Hitler, so that sort of dates it. It was two thousand six. I was a teenager, yeah. Um, and I was um, on the bill after Tom Holland, and Tom Holland, I think, was talking about Rubicon. It would have been that long. I think ago, that's yeah. how long ago it was. Um, and I sat in the sat in the audience and listened to Tom. Um, talking about Rubicon and I was I knew I was on next on the same <laughs> stage and I just sat there and I just went oh my god <laughs> so I followed yeah. this guy and he was fantastic he was absolute box office and he still is yeah. my book. and that, the rest of his history is fantastic he's just his his I think a four parter we're, uh, we're speaking I've just had part three of the, the Irish, Irish Revolution it's, it's just wonderful yeah. it is amazing yeah. I, I mean I, I, I'm so there are very few sort of historians writing that when they've got a new book coming out I will literally clear the decks to read it and that's why I can't wait very looking forward to it I'm very jealous of you I shall sell you my proof (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but in terms of uh, we there is an elephant in the room where one of the board members is missing uh, today Saul David and in terms of a book of the year his paperback is recently out Devil Dogs and I did one of these kind of podcasts before. I mean, technically it was a book of last year, but the paperback is out now. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's just an excellent piece of military history. He's just, you know, uh, a veteran at doing these things. And the book has plenty of kind of, you know, heroism and tragedy. Uh, it's also got one of the best postscripts of a book I've ever read where he basically talks about uh, certain uh, soldiers in the Pacific campaign, but then he traces what happened afterwards. Blessing me done some research while well done saw. <laughs> and and it's it's absolutely powerhouse stuff. Uh, and it, it's you know, he's very comfortable in the Second World War. Yeah. But this is one of his best books. So in terms of a sort of rather than take a an unwieldy hardback, if you just want to take a paperback abroad, uh Devil Dogs, uh yeah. I'll give uh, you know, an eight out of twenty. No joke. <laughs> uh, ten out of ten, yes. You'll tear through it, it's yeah. great read. Yeah. No, he's absolutely. He's in his. He's in the purple patch at the moment, so isn't he? So he's doing. He's doing some lovely stuff. Yeah. 
So one one novel I want to mention, and, and Antonio, I noticed the fig jam is very popular. I know, so I'm smearing it. Well, everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, sorry about okay. that. Yeah, we're in a very sticky situation at the moment. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, but one novel that um, the listeners will be familiar with from earlier on in the year, which was Jamie McGillivray. Jamie McGillivray by John Sayles. And um, it's a rip-roaring tale uh, set during the Seven Years' War. And it is... Uh, I absolutely loved it. It was just one of those novels. It was, it was very epic. Don't worry, you can make as much noise as you like when opening this bottle, listeners. <laughs> and I know, Antonia, you loved it as well. Because I love it. it made the fiction, fiction book of the month for historical fiction in the Times. Yeah, no, it was excellent. Really the London good. Times for international readers, that is. Yeah. Listeners, listeners. Really kind of old-fashioned, I thought. So, kind of, you know, Rick Roaring, Walter Scott kind of adventure story um, spanning kind of years and I, I thought it was great it was really good um, yeah and you loved it I know you loved it yeah yeah. Why, well, did you, why did you love it so much I don't know I, I just think his uh, ancestors were probably in it yeah <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have been the bad guys in that uh, but I don't know why I think it, I think it was because it reminded me of Finnemore Cooper Last of the Mohicans oh, yeah. and that yeah. stuff and that's right on my street, you know. It's yeah. it's it's just you know the epic nature of it's those the American wilderness and yeah. the forests, the mighty fir trees and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and it starts off at Culloden, which yeah. is we've um, uh, th- this is a battle I think was the last battle on British soil, yeah. and was the destruction of Highland culture, I believe. And they're all thinking. Listeners, 1746. I'm pretty sure that is the last battle. I mean, on there's Brit- the culture British wars story. going on at the moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's a war. But, uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, do uh, write in to disprove Holly oh, wrong. Should he be? Uh, I did. I did. I did set this as a question for the Christmas quiz, and it was. And someone came back to me and said, "Well, what about the Falklands War?" And that's a bit of a that's a bit of an interesting one because technically it's not really British soil. It's a protectorate, is, is that? Yeah, right? it's well, it's it's a little bit more than is is it a, what what is it technically? Mm, good one. It is a good. It was a good challenge. Yeah, but yeah. Um, it depends it's good, on the but legal it's status of Falklands. Isn't yeah, it? but we're not yeah. France. Let's be honest. I mean, in so many ways, but we're not France. So the, our colonies are not automatically French soil. So. Mm. Yeah. Good point, Roger. Yeah. Um, right. Well, I'm going to mention just one more book that I have just started, uh, which is David Carpenter's uh, second volume of his biography of, of Henry III. And I mean, for kind of, you know, medievalists and historians and academics, I mean, this is a kind of an event book uh, where the first book was incredibly well received. But the second book has, has kind of got the sexy stuff coming with of Simon de Montfort and introducing Edward I. And I mean, I've just started it, but it, it's, it's excellent. I mean, he is an academic that can completely write with complete kind of command of his subject that we can only kind of uh, envy and admire. Uh, so in terms of people interested in, you know, in the sense of the, the, the 13th century and, and, and those personalities, uh, it's an absolute must because, I mean, these this two-volume biography, that's it, it's the first and last word, really. 
uh, and uh, I would highly recommend that as well. I know that Seabag, Montefiore and Dan Jones have, have recommended it and they, they know a thing or two about putting a kind of history book together mm -hmm. uh, and, and they've praised it to the hill. So that's another one that, that has just come out uh, that I would highly recommend. Okay, sounds good. I would, um, just on the subject of uh, academics who can write, which is um, a relatively... Uh, <laughs> small subset <laughs> of academics but no I mean I, I joke but no I don't but uh, um, I, on that subject my old uh, lecturer Martin Rady who's now retired from CIS but he was the Masaryk Professor of Central European History at the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies University of London um, he was a great mate you know we used to uh, back in the day um, it felt like he wasn't that much older than, than I was when I was an undergraduate and we, used, we did used to go drinking we used to have sort of four to five four to five o'clock um, seminars and then afterwards we'd go and go to the Institute of Education for a few beers so it was all it was all very jolly back in the day and he was he was great fun I mean tremendously tremendously knowledgeable um, and he's just published um, a, a history of Central Europe a new history of Central Europe uh, which is called The Middle Kingdoms, uh, which is coming out with um, Alan Lane, I think, mm. uh, coming out this summer. It is uh, a reasonably weighty tome, it must be said. It's a big book, but it is it, it has a wonderful lightness of being, I have to say, to it. He's one of those people, he has endless knowledge about Central Europe, and more so than probably you know anyone else writing on the subject at the moment. Um, but he has... <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I would. I'm very happy to make that concession. You know, um, I mean, he, he interestingly, his background is is uh, Hungarian Habsburg history, Hungarian history, and his his sort of fetish, if you like, his historical fetish um, was his, was Hungarian legal history. So that's where he was wow. a real niche. Yeah. Absolutely, very niche. But in the process of teaching Central European history to uh, you know, generation upon generation of undergrads and postgrads like myself back in the day in the early 90s, uh, he knows it backwards. Uh, and he, and the, the main thing, where I came into this, was that he can write. Uh, and he said himself, I was at the launch last week, uh, he said himself when he was um, uh, launching the book that this was his retirement project, it was his lockdown project, um, and it was him kind of freed of the shackles of academia. Mm. So he's writing in a way, and it, and it was quite sweet, really, because he said, well, you know, I could, I felt I could, I, I was free and I could write um, each chapter I could introduce with a sort of set piece mm. um, of, a, you know, an individual, and I could, and that could be instructive of the whole, and I thought, well, hang on, this is what the rest of us yeah. outside academia do all the time. But for him, as an academic, was, this was kind of novel. Was he you know? freed up from the idea of the point system, almost? And yeah, I think was, so. Yeah, you know, I'm not writing for my institution. Yeah, exactly. He's I'm, writing I'm right, for, a, yeah. for, a, for a public. So bring out the stuff. And he absolutely can do it. You know, he's, it's full of it's full of wry asides, and I mean, it's you laugh every page, because there's there's and for me especially when you know the guy, you can hear his voice, and sometimes you know where he's he's having a go, and it's hilarious. So there's lots of humour in it as well, because there's there's endless humour in sort of Central European history, because some of it is so bizarre. Yeah. But he covers it so well, and his his brilliance where he's put he's sort of teasing out those areas of of um, congruence with the sort of you know, Western European norms, historical norms and historical trends and so on. And then he pulls out where the, the, the Central Europe, European experience is radically different, you know. So mm. it's a really, really good read. It, it buzzes along, you know. Mm. As I said, it's a hefty book, so, you know, 
It's a, it's an ask for the beach, but it's it's well no. worth it. It's well worth. It. Now, in terms, well, just, of, but before oh. just before you do, um, Richard, that actually Martin wrote a piece for us in our most recent magazine. So if that tickles your fancy, he wrote a, a, an interesting piece on Matthias Rakosi, the Soviet the sort of Stalinist yeah. ruler of Hungary. Of Hungary, yeah, mm. which was very interesting. Really Rakosi, interesting. I think. Ra- my pronunciation. Sorry, my Hungarian's not as Matthias strong Rakosi. as it could be. Sorry, Roger. <laughs> no answers. Dear, oh dear. Yeah. Richard, I interrupted you. But do you have one fiction book you'd like to mention? Uh, well, I do, because you've just seen me stand up and grab it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've been sent... I, I, so I have, I, I have a bit of a... Um, from childhood, I loved a bit of Wilbur Smith. And so Wilbur Smith is no longer with us, sadly, but he has got a new series out taking his Courtney's back in time. And uh, it's Stormtide and Nemesis, I think. I think. So if you want to, like, nice, relaxed, sit on the beach, don't worry about life, and want to read a good bit, bit of historical fiction, I, I think the, uh, um, the, new, the new Courtney series written by Wilbur Smith, the latest of which is Nemesis. Can I, can I suggest a historical adventure book by someone who's alive? Yes. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that, the listeners must what be confused. Like, how how the hell did he write the book when he was not alive? Ooh. Yeah, no, no. He was. Yeah, so so. I mean, I'm sure it's wonderful. It's ghostwritten by an excellent writer, and you know, so I'm sure it's wonderful. But but <laughs> there is a his new star of historical adventure that I just want everybody to know about. Um, who irritatingly is only in her twenties, which I find. actually personally offensive but anyway skating over that Um, so her name is Katie I think it's Daesh I don't really know how to pronounce it Daesh D-A-Y isn't that the name of Isis yeah no that's Daesh oh right sorry no she's very much not in Isis unless Isis have taken to writing Age of Sail historical fiction yes I've heard of this book that's not gonna float oh dear I've heard of this book so this so like, so, okay, first of all, you have to understand that I love historical fiction. The historical fiction I love best is anything involving a sale. I'm completely obsessed with it. I've read everything more than once. Oh, yeah. I literally... John Sales. Yeah, I went John Sales. I literally went sailing on tall ships when I was in my 20s because I'd read too much Hornblower, so I wanted to go and climb the rigging, which I then did and discovered it was actually quite scary. Anyway... So that's the background. So I really know what I'm talking about. And Casey has written a book called Leeward. It's out with a very, uh, with a kind of small but pugnacious and very ambitious uh, press called Canelo. Uh, and it's completely fantastic. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It starts at the Battle of the Nile. There's a um, brilliant set piece opening where the hero of her uh, new um uh, intended trilogy of novels is called Captain Nightingale and he um, is caught in the explosion of the French flagship um, and anyway uh, he, he then uh, sort of goes on to the Caribbean uh, the kind of I guess the quirky selling point of this book is that it's also a gay love story uh, so it's the first um, kind of I guess queer age of sale novel but any of you who might think that's off-putting really grow up it's brilliant and the, and the love story is beautifully done it's, it feels like a cross between 
C.S. Forrester and Mary Renault. And if you've read both of those authors, you know what I'm talking about. You need to go and read this book. It's brilliant. So there we go. That's my pitch. Well, it seems that that's your book of the year, almost, if you had to nail your colours to the mast. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, nailing my colours to the mast, I would say that is the book that I would try the ribbon for this year. I oh. mean, I would say, for me, it's, it's Tom Holland's uh, Pax. Uh, which I know is not quite out yet, but uh, uh, listeners, it's it's due. And Roger, what well, if you had to say one book of the year in not the Forgers? Not what the would forgers. it be? Um, I'm going. This might surprise you. Um, I'm going to go with um, uh, Katya Hoyer's Beyond the Wall, um, which I, I, there are there are issues to raise, which we can maybe talk about, but is um, I think is a brilliant book she writes like a dream i mean it's full of anecdotes and vignettes and and she makes a very good case um that she is you know redeeming a history that's kind of been forgotten and a little bit willfully forgotten the history of, of the gdr um gdr was as she as she says in her introduction it was there for 40 years you know this is longer than the first world war the second world war nazi germany all combined and yet it's kind of dismissed as a uh, as a sort of anomaly as something that of lesser interest as a, as a sort of uh, diversion from the from the norm um, and she does a decent job I, I'm kind of the word in my head is rehabilitating it which is not right because I don't want to be rehabilitating communism but she really rehabilitates the hot the history mm. Of that, uh, of that state, and of its whatever it was, with, with humor as well, with, and with humor yeah, and with feeling, and it's and it's a really, really interesting book. Beautiful, I have to say, beautifully written, mm. absolutely beautifully written. And she doesn't skate over the bad stuff at all. You know, she goes into all of the Stasi stuff. The book starts. The opening um, section of the book is is the German communists in the nineteen thirties. Um, in the Soviet Gulag, right? So there's no whitewashing communism in that sense. Um, my sort of slight concern with it is that though there is there is a sort of constituency out there of people who, you know, look at that book and say, you know, see, communism wasn't that bad, um, which is kind of quite. I mean, that's not her intention. She's not mm. trying to rehabilitate communism. She's trying to rehabilitate. Um, the state yeah, that she grew up in, the Cambridge yeah, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth. We can absolutely can't be in the business of holding people responsible for the reactions of assholes to their books. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know it happens all the time. Yeah. You know, you get a pretty decent book and it's hijacked by a kind of interest group to prove their point. But yeah. it's not the fault of the person who wrote the book. No, I agree. Book. I agree. And the, and this and that's what came around. So I say there there were sort of things things about it in a way that sort of bothered me, but then. At re rereading some of it last night, I thought this is actually a really bloody good book. Mm. It's very well written. Um, it beautifully illustrates, you know, the period that she's she's trying to bring to life. And I think for me, that would be my book of the year. I mean, I would say, listeners, there is no book that uh, doesn't bother Roger and some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's to be eight attempts brilliant is basically a masterwork. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just going to mention. Um, Probably a couple of others, a couple of others, but very quickly. And uh, I've just come back from a very enjoyable cycling trip around World War One, France, and Belgium. And the Path of Peace by Anthony Selden. It's very lovely reading. Really, it takes you away. It's a tragic 
the World War One, you know, the, the the cemeteries and cycling through France, there's just endless numbers of cemeteries you cycle past. Makes you realise the sacrifice. But his book's very enjoyable, so I'd recommend that. And then very briefly, Palatine by Peter Stothard, which deals with the same period that I think Tom Holland's reading just a little bit before, but it's lots of fun. It's completely outrageous and vulgar, just like those Romans. And listeners will know I prefer the Greeks, but this, in this case, it's, it's hilarious. So if you had to uh, choose one book, uh, mine host, uh, which would it be? I would go for the Serhi Flocky book. We've ended as we've begun. Yeah, lovely, lovely segueing host. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, for doing my job for me. That's awesome. Uh, so, listeners, links, as I said, links you'll find in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and please rate and review if you can. And if my guests enjoyed this, perhaps they'll return at Christmas and we'll do it again. Yeah. yeah. Thank you.